Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello, guys and girls. The program you are about to hear will be both fun and educational, but it is not a substitute for medical advice. Although we are doctors, we are not your doctors. Hello and welcome to Travel Medicine. As always, I'm your friendly neighborhood internal medicine doc, Dr. J. Hey guys, straight from the lab. This is Dr. Santosh, your pediatric infectious disease doctor and researcher. And joining us, we have the cast of our wildly successful, as far as we know, space drama. (laughs) (laughs) It was so... (laughs) <laughs> that was fantastic. <laughs> yes. Let's meet each of our cast members, starting with who you are and what you actually do, and then we can get to your characters. So to begin with, thank you for joining us, Eleanor. All right. Well, thank you very much. Um Eleanor Rangers. I'm the president of Space Medicine Associates, and I guess you can kind of blame me for the because I was involved in writing primarily the script, adapting it actually from a simulation exercise that Space Medicine Associates had actually written about a decade ago, along with some of the other participants that are here on the call this evening. And it's been it was presented at a couple of live events. And uh, then in talking with Josh, he suggested that perhaps we adapt it for podcast. So um, that's how this all came together. And I actually played the role of Sarah Harrington, the flight director. Hi, it's uh, Gary McQueen. I'm on the board of directors of the Canadian Space Society and also a member of the National Space Society where I met Eleanor and the rest of the gang for that original uh, lives sim. I play uh, Jeff Gould, the reporter in this mission control. Hello, I'm Lynn Messina. I am a production supervisor at McGraw-Hill, and I work on technical books engineering, computer science, instruction, all that kind of really fun stuff. And and I played Nancy Cranklin in the um, podcast. When we first met through sheer fortuitous chance that you had a couple of these simulations that you would run. Now, when you guys developed these, this was a joint venture or was this just Space Medicine Associates? Did you work with anyone? And... Who made use of these simulations? I had attended, along with uh, Linda Plush, this must have been in the early 90s, we attended a conference in Houston on medicine and extreme environments, which is a very interesting meeting. So it talked about, you know, high-altitude medicine, space flight, 
deep sea diving and so forth. And one of the afternoon activities was actually to participate in a simulation of a medical disaster. I think it, it was in the lo- on uh, on the moon. And that original script was written by uh, former members of Mission Control in Houston. Well, I was absolutely captivated by this. I thought it, I thought it was great. And eventually, I was able to obtain the script for that exercise. A couple of uh, friends of mine, including Linda, actually ran that at a National Space Society meeting. You know, actually, there was a fair amount of interest at that point, and I think, if I, if memory serves me, that's when I met Gary and Tom, and there was some just kind of uh, informal conversation at that point about, hey, it would be pretty cool to do this again, but, uh, you know, what about next year? And I also think the National Space Society expressed interest in it. So that's eventually what led to us putting together the current scenario, which was presented the following year at the National Space Society, and it was subsequently used in a couple of other venues, including Balticon, uh, believe it or not, several years ago, and then most recently adapted into this uh, podcast. So it evolved from actually observing another type of scenario, and I kind of thought it was really captivating. And what I enjoyed about it in the live scenario is that it, there's, I would say, a degree of nonlinearity to the outcome. Uh, depending on the mix of people in the room um, and their backgrounds, you can end up either killing the entire crew or uh, getting them home. Um, and it just depends on the mix uh, and the interaction in the room. And the whole goal, obviously, is to have the team members work together, utilizing the data that they individually have to create a greater whole for the benefit of the crew. Um, so that's that was kind of what got kind of lit my fire. Nice, fantastic. If I recall, Eleanor, I think uh, I remember uh, when we ran the simulation. I think it was in Denver in 2002. Uh, we had um, the participants who were members of the audience uh, participate in one room, while uh, the team that we had on uh, quote Mars was in another room, and we communicated via I think it was uh, VHS tapes. Yes, oh. we did. Wow. Yes, we did. And in fact, so I think I still have the VHS tape, believe it or not. <laughs> so this simulated the delay. That's right. It we did. would build in the ten, a 10 minute delay, and how it would work is we had a video camera that would record the Capcom in Mission Control, and then that would go over to the other room. Then they'd have to, you know, queue up their VCR to hear the message. And then they would communicate back. So it did work into about a 10-minute delay or so between the rooms. Nice. They didn't want to just email, maybe? <laughs> Send a Snapchat? Yeah, well, the, I, I think, think we did that, too. I remember there was a scenario where the video cut out and we switched to using a text chat. Oh, ground control right. to make their tone. <laughs> I was actually a major at one point, so that was a that was a good time. I almost I almost refused the promotion, so I was uh, to make me not Major Tom anymore. But no, that wasn't worth it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, my name is Tom Hill, and I'm an aerospace engineer. I'm one of those lucky people who, in, when they were young, said I want to be an aerospace engineer. I went to college as one, and worked in the Air Force as one, and now I work in the the civil world as one as well been in the industry for about, gosh, going on 25, 26 years, worked with a lot of different things, uh, not any manned space flight. It's been exclusively uncrewed satellites as far as like weather satellites or land survey satellites, things along those lines. So I've been, I've been in control rooms when, you know, when something needs to go right and you're, everybody's staring at one monitor waiting, waiting for a bit to flip saying that something happened. I got into writing in uh, after the after we lost uh, Columbia. I was trying to think what we'd do now. What would we do? What's uh, NASA? I wrote a book called Space What Now, literally asking the question. Um, and then Linda, who are you in the real world? What do you do? And who were you in the show? In the real world, I'm a nurse practitioner. However, for the last I don't know 20 years, I've been in aerospace consultant for NASA at JSC in Human Factors, and background is family practice and nephrology. 
And interestingly enough, nephrology, because the patients are dependent upon equipment, lends itself to space because I'm very used to having people totally dependent on machines. So um, kind of led me there in a weird kind of way. And who were you in the show? Pat. All right. So now, folks, you've met our full crew. So Gary, Tom, and Eleanor, when you first did this, this simulation, how different an experience aside from communicating via VCR, which, by the way, kids, that's what we had before Blu-ray and DVDs, but after televisions. And in some ways, it was much more flexible. Create your own Netflix. Kind of. We had a group in one room, and we had the other group in the other room. So they didn't see each other. It was, it was a lot of fun, actually. And how similar do you feel it was having done the simulation as yourselves? What did it feel like to be running a version of this simulation in our story? It was it was different with the story playing itself out. Uh, the, the way we wrote the script, we actually handed volunteers technical guides of how to respond. There were response plans and things like that, and we were hoping that they would that they would open them up, and there were literally flow charts that if there if you had this problem, you should do this, and that's what kind that what's what kept it kind of open ended. Uh, we had, in fact, I think the people at Balticon didn't realize they were stepping into a simulation. They thought they were just going to a talk, and uh, but they they were good sports about it, and I think I think everybody had fun. <laughs> I can imagine walking in like, wait, I'm part of what kind of situation now? Yes, you're now mission control. You're in charge of life support. But I thought it was just... But anyway. <laughs> but I just came here to get my CME credit. <laughs> Let's talk a little bit about some of the things we covered in our, in our drama and in the sim. Uh, starting with, first off, my, my virtual hat off to you, Satosh, for my favorite <laughs> character of the entire series, Helmet. <laughs> but let's talk about what happened to Helmet and being exposed to hydrazine. You know, how realistic is this? Is this a problem that's happened on previous space missions? Have any of you had the opportunity to hear about this, interact with it? Um, did we do an accurate job? Uh, I was actually just reading recently the uh, Apollo astronauts from Apollo Soyuz were exposed to hydrazine on their return to Earth. Somebody left a valve open. There are definitely, there are short-term and then longer-term problems with being exposed to hyd hydrazine. With nitrogen tetroxide and monomethyl and hydrazine, they're usually used together, and they're very nasty chemicals. The problem is sure. they're very great rocket fuels. So, so you could be exposed to either one. Who would have thought that yeah. volatile combustible chemicals are both great at propelling giant masses into the sky and listen, listen, dangerous. Santosh, you know, you know how the saying goes: you want to get into space, you got to have a few seizures. There we go. There we go. Vance Brand briefly lost consciousness. Stafford retrieved emergency oxygen masks and put one on Brand and gave one to Slayton. They were hospitalized for two weeks in Honolulu. All of you who always ignore the airplane safety rules about putting on your mask before you help others, let that be a lesson to you. Let it be a lesson, absolutely. Speaking of that, I always smile when I'm on my many flights back and forth from Chicago to the East Coast, and they go over that, you know, the drops down, but then put your mask on first, then help others. The reality is, if the cabin suddenly depressurized, you have literally seconds before you would probably lose consciousness. So I sure. often wonder how for show rather than reality. Smarter Every Day, which is one of my favorite little online uh, YouTube series, he actually put himself, the host of this, who's a, uh, he's also an engineer, he took his oxygen mask off in a simulated depressurization, and it was scary. You know, he faded out, and, and the... Uh, the manager of the sim was actually saying over the mic, hey, you may want to put your mask on now because you don't want to die. And he would kind of look at the sim manager kind of slanted-eyed kind and said, well, I guess I don't want to die. <laughs> you know, the, <laughs> the stages of consciousness, you know, you don't just pass out. You actually come to a point where 
your decision making is severely impaired and this is the stage that you don't want to get to because then you you will die simply because you don't know what to do okay short term <laughs> exposure to high levels of hydrazine the problems include irritation of the eyes nose and throat dizziness headache nausea pulmonary edema seizures and coma if you recall from from the, the uh, our little misadventure on the Martian surface, that you know Helmet actually was seizing from exposure to hydrazine. He also had skin irritation from it, and because of uh, Pat's suit leak, she may have in fact had some symptoms, you know, with with her not feeling well, that may have compounded the uh, hypoxia from from the suit leak. So that was written into the script. Um, this kind of stuff, I mean, if it's spilled on your suit and then you remove your helmet in a pressurized environment, just the stuff that's on your suit, that can have effects on you, just from breathing whatever's coming off of that. Yeah, I mean, if we actually had run this live, you know, we we could have made it even more dramatic with, you know, crew members coming into the hab and that they had hydrazine on them, and then that suddenly contaminates the hab. and. We sort of alluded to that in the in the writing about pad contamination, but you know, for the sake of the drama and making it a little difficult to visualize. If we had done it live, there would have been a whole other set of drama. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Now, Gary, you were on the mission control end of things. What can you tell us about what it's like to try and communicate these sorts of medical emergencies. Have you had any experience in that role or witnessed it? No real-life experience, but uh, I know the time delays are the, are the, the big thing that causes the, uh, the issues with the describing the medical emergencies and relaying all that information. So what I remember when we did the sim, as we were crafting the messages that we wanted to send back sort of to mission control from the from the mission cast that were in the separate room. We had to make sure that we listed all the things we wanted to say beforehand so we could read it out on that script. Even if you're just giving a report, you want to sort of make sure you've covered everything in that one burst of transmission. You can't have a conversation when you have that time delay. And that's that's the big challenge, I think, in all of this when it comes to the uh, Mars Sim emergency simulation. Let's talk about everybody's favorite character, Bill. I was really happy to see him die. (laughs) (laughs) It was just... Overjoyed. I really was. But I know we gave him almost a total recall kind of death, where just the complete vacuum sucks him out. Is this something that could actually happen... You know, would you even hear a scream from Bill ignoring Helmet's casual murder of him? <laughs> um, he remembers also, nothing. Right? Jerry. And also... <laughs> I, I want to say, just for a second, um, because you know, I know, you know, th- this was amateur acting and all this kind of fun stuff, and but honestly and truly, the lines that were written for Helmet right there when Bill was just forcefully thrown out of that hab. <laughs> I mean, it, those were beautiful, beautiful lines. And um, I don't know, actually, Eleanor, if you intended them to be that way, or if you actually wanted Helmet to kind of be out of it. I, I basically, the, you know, what I was trying to imply was, oh, when... He leaned on of, it by accident, or... No, no, it was purposeful, because remember, <laughs> when he woke up, he was really irritated that Bill had put the other crew members in danger. So, so yeah, it was, he ultimately really wanted to revenge and he never liked Bill anyway, but then he, no, he no. Play, you know, he feigned, he feigned, you know, I don't know what happened. I was on drugs. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> what? Where are you? No, I think, and, and it was such a joy to play that last bit because I think Josh, you're absolutely right. We hated Bill so so much, <laughs> and he was the perfect like god awful uh, you know antagonist to have in the middle of all this chaos. So let's talk a little bit about both his actual death and his mental health. I I know when we've spoken before, Tom, that you certainly have expressed some frustration with either how quickly Bill succumbed to space madness or the idea that someone with his mental deficiencies would be able to make it to a mission in the first place. 
yeah, I it's it's a battle inside me that uh, you know I, I like things to, to to get all the technical facts right. Yet I acknowledge that you need to take some some license. I would hope that a the screening process for somebody going to Mars would be tough enough that somebody like Bill would not go. But if if that had happened, we wouldn't have much of a story. I was going to tell you about a first that actually went on a simulation um, through the Mars Society, a scientist with no background with problems who had a mini breakdown because his experiment did not you know, go as planned. And for him, his career was on the line. And there was serious discussion of evacuating him out of the situation. So even with the best oh, wow. training in town, you know, and even with super bright people, there's no guarantee that someone's not going to have a problem unforeseen and snap. And this guy did to the point where right. people were worried about him carrying kitchen knives around. So you know, oh wow, yeah, you yeah. So you just don't know. You just don't know. The only civilian, you know, that that I know of who went. Well, I know there have been. There's been like one other civilian after Christy McAuliffe, right? I mean, recent, more recently. Oh right? no, there have been West several, space. several paid space tourists. That female astronaut that drove all the way down because she had a problem with one of co-workers and had a thing for one of the other astronauts. If you remember, this is somebody who had over a million dollars worth of military and government training, and who knew that she was going to do this? So you don't always know. So what, do any of you know what's in place currently in terms of mental health evaluation and or treatment for those in space? I can take a bit of a crack at that. What's done now has certainly in the U.S. program has definitely evolved quite substantially since we started getting more long-duration experience going back into the mid-90s with the Mir space station when we had a astronaut visiting Mir. Before that, a lot of the experience with long-duration flight psychology really was in the realm of the Russians. They were the ones that had most of this, and they they actually had system system down pretty well with a team of psychologists and so forth that would closely monitor the cosmonauts, including even such things, interestingly, as listening to the the tone of their transmissions. And if they oh, wow. sensed, yeah. yeah, they sensed something in the tone, a change in tone, that that may prompt more, you know, verbal intervention from the psychologists on the ground. I think the U.S. has taken a lot lessons from that uh, because on the uh, the mere experience which was pretty dramatically depicted in the in the book Dragonfly the US astronauts were really not prepared for that the isolation that they felt the fact there wasn't a lot of recreational stuff on the mirror there were just a number of things that really challenged them and you know there's pretty clear documentation of a lot of strife between the mission control and the astronaut one of the astronauts John Blaha pretty famously developed clinical depression because he felt he felt overwhelmed with the amount of work that he was being asked to do and little sympathy from you know from mission control but you know I think those lessons of trance have been learned to a, to a degree with the International Space Station and now uh, I think the psychological screening and priming for missions occurs literally I think a year or two years for astronauts actually launch to the station. It may involve family counseling, and there's a, a much more sophisticated infrastructure for supporting the astro- astronauts psychologically. So at least I think we've we've learned our lessons for that. But I think it's going to be a whole mag of difference uh, if and when we actually travel to, to the asteroids or to Mars. Now, I know that some of the initial, I guess I'll say, friction between flight docks and the astronauts was because of the initial fighter pilot pedigree of our, of our astronauts. And they, basically the only thing a flight dock could do was ground you. That's right. That's right. <laughs> Go to your room. Yeah. yeah. That was and that was very famously written in Tom Wolfe's The Right Stuff, talking about that strife between the flight surgeons and and the astronauts. As the missions got more more difficult, not through particularly technical challenges, but things like boredom and things like that, that the whole the whole concept changed and it looks like it's going you know, it's moving in the right direction. One of the things I know brought a a question mark to both Santosh and I was the fact that when Rick went out to retrieve Bill near the end of the drama, he brought along his gun. 
and I was unaware that astronauts routinely carried guns. <laughs> so I was hoping one of you could comment on that. Oh. <laughs> they do carry guns. Initially, the excuse was from the Russians because they land in the Siberian Arctic areas that if they had to, to wait for a retrieval, that they would have something to fight off wolves and bears. That was the original excuse. So, yeah, they would have the Russians... The Russians in particular are the instigators of a lot of this, this weaponry. So yeah, it was it was supposedly for a practical purpose to fend off the wolves and bears if necessary. And those included a rifle rifles as well as handguns of various types. In the US program actually it's a little a little more mundane. The, the astronauts as early as Project Mercury had like Swiss Army knives or, you know, a, a knife. I believe in Gemini, they actually carried sort of an, a, a modified machete, believe it or not, because if the astronauts, like, landed off course because they were splashing down in the Pacific, if they ended up, like, off course and had to get marooned on, like, an island, they wanted to be able to hack through the jungle. So they had uh, these machetes. I've even seen pictures of the Russians having meat cleavers on board the space stations to slice up sausage, which is a little disturbing. And then, uh, fine. <laughs> what are they making sausage out of? Who <laughs> knows? And then the final thing that's really intriguing is apparently the Russians had literally like phaser or laser guns that um, I guess were used potentially used for uh, disabling, I don't know, satellites, vicious satellites or something like that. But, yeah, they actually had these uh, these crazy guns that looked like, I mean, they really looked like the sci-fi stun gun that you would Oh, see you're like talking about the ones on the stations. They're actually, yeah. Yeah, there was a, uh, they had a Gatling gun on one as well. It was only ever fired once when the station was unmanned. This was back in the crazy days of the Cold War. Yeah. Yeah, that Gatling gun was pretty bad. <laughs> Badass. I'm sorry, did you just both tell me there was a Gatling gun on a space station? Yes. Yeah. Yes. And it was fired once. It was fired oh. once. They had trouble aiming it because of the orbital dynamics of firing a, uh, a bullet oh. in space. What, what were they aiming it at? It was just a test. They just they, they didn't even know if it would work. The idea was if they wanted to take out one of our satellites, they would aim it at that. Oh, so we'd fire a Gatling gun at a satellite. Yes. Did it work? The gun fired. I don't have any more details other than that, but it never... It's never, classified. Yeah, no, no, it's Russian. It's, uh, I, it's all right. <laughs> yeah, that is true. There was a Gatling gun as well as these, like, photon torpedo laser... Uh, laser guns that they had on board. Let me drift back to Linda for a moment. You are an actual nurse, and again, you mentioned specialize in kidney. How, how closely did our medical procedures in the HAB mirror what would likely be to happen in terms of both supplies available and the kind of medical expertise uh, both on the HAB and in communication? with ground control? Well, actually, Eleanor and I have worked on this for, for many years, and so, unfortunately, it is pretty close to what would really happen. They don't carry everything, they can't carry everything, and you can't anticipate everything that could happen. So it's common, or would be a, not a surprise, to find out that you have a condition, but you, oops, you forgot to pack that specialized medication for that particular you know, problem. What they do is they try to decide on what the most likely things to happen, and that's what they stock. But if you're unlucky enough to come up with something unusual or unexpected, could you be there without equipment? Absolutely. So all the improvisation we saw taking place is accurate to what would be going on? Well, they take an inventory of what do you have, and then try to figure out what they could use out of that group. Very similar to the Apollo 13 problem. You know, they couldn't anticipate that. They had to work with what was there. They took a, a couple astronauts, put them in a room, and said, this is what the guys have got on the table. you got to make, you know, a scrubber out of a sock and a, a cardboard box and some tape and, you know, God knows, duct tape, you know, helps a lot. So the guys had to work the problem, and in medicine we would be doing the same. You know, what do we have up there? How do how can we use it? Can we use a drug differently than normal? Would it help? I don't know. You know, they they take an inventory and work the problem. So how closely do 
I guess to all of you who are with various space agencies, uh, how closely are you working with your country's space program? Uh, my company is what's known as a, a federally funded research and development corporation. Back when the Air Force was first getting missiles built, they'd choose a winner for a contract, and they wanted an independent source of how the contract was going, and they could either hire the company that won the contract, where they'd say, everything's going great, or they'd hire the company who lost the contract, and they'd say, these guys are messing up, they're doing everything wrong. So they founded my company, and the goal of our company is to be the objective source of technical knowledge so that we can't bid on contracts. We just There's a, there's a specific type of job that the, the uh, Air Force, in our case, says only my company can do it. And I'm not going to identify the name of my company just to... Sure, and, and, but you would be told something like, your company is now responsible for figuring out how to build the best habitat for Mars. And that's it. You're the only ones who could do it. That kind of thing? That kind of thing. Day to day, it's, a little, it's usually a little more technical. Like, the, this spacecraft's batteries aren't functioning the way we expect. How, could you guys tell us how to run them better? Uh, Gary, what is the Canadian Space Agency? How are you hooked into your country's space program? So I'm with the Canadian Space Society. The Canadian Space, oh. Canadian Space Agency is the government-run program, you know, similar to, to what we think of when we say NASA is the same uh, government-like structure. But the, uh, in the Space Society, a space advocacy organization, so we're a nonprofit, and we have local chapters where members of the public can come and hear some talks. We publish a newsletter to, to keep people who are members up-to-date on national and international space programs and space business. We also hold annual conferences. We often do also when the Canadian Space Agency does conferences to look f uh, further ahead to the developing their own space policies. We send representatives to those conferences as well. A lot of our members are former engineers, Air Force members. So ours is much more public focus and space advocacy and space interest oriented. And then, Eleanor, you and Linda are both from Space Medicine Associates. And how are you hooked into the, the space world? Well, I would, I would say that... Uh, <laughs> space world. world! Sorry. Um, I would go there. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I would say back when the shuttle was still still operational. We had a little more active involvement from a consultative capacity with NASA. You know, both Linda and I had participated in some workshops and so forth down at Johnson Space Center. I think now it's, you know, the, that activity has slowed somewhat. They'll call if they have a particular question. I did get a phone call a ways back. They wanted to know about wound care. Uh, a lot of physicians order wound care, but they don't particularly perform it. So they wanted to know what should we pack, what should we take. And I made for them a list of the type of things I would imagine would be the most efficient and, you know, what they could think about packing. One of the things was burn net because you can, it's expandable, it, it's reusable, you, you know, it's a very universal item. So there were a few things that, you know, they'll call if they have a particular question. But, um, you know, you may not hear from them for quite a while. And then all of a sudden, you know, someone will call. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. I have a question. If it was you up in our story, what would you have liked to have done or... What would you have done differently if we were not forcing you down our predetermined dramatic path? <laughs> Does anyone have uh, a particular love or interest or favorite moment? Uh, hate something that just really bugged you aside from uh, 
Bill going space crazy. I was going to say maybe taking care of Bill earlier. Maybe. Not not even trying to rescue him. As it turned out, it would have been for the greater good. I mean, you know, there wasn't enough. True. He was just going to die anyway. You know, actually to that point, the first time I participated in that first sim that kind of got me really interested, part of that sim included the fact that there was a solar storm. And there were there were two astronauts that were on the lunar surface, and one had gotten injured, and they were concerned about getting that walking. They were walking back, and would they get back in time before the major solar storm hit? So they were. There was a lot of uh, you know discussion about exposure to radiation, and at one point, would it be you know futile to rescue them at the expense of the crew? And I actually was sitting on the radiation team, and I was like the only person arguing that they needed to let the one person that was injured go and just let them fry on the lunar surface because you had to save the rest of the crew. It yeah, didn't yeah. make sense to sacrifice another person to go out and rescue him because that person would be exposed to a massive amount of particle radiation, but I remember the guy that was sort of the mission control advisor for our radiation team was like appalled that I had such a such a, a, a horrible outlook on that. We have to try to save everybody. I'm like, no, you don't. Why? Why? This isn't a Kobayashi Maru. You can let him die. Exactly. <laughs> no, no. And, well, the, it's interesting that you brought up Star Trek because that's the first, well, it's one of the first things that I actually thought of just now was, depending on which Star Trek you go with, you either have Spock or Kirk stuck back there in the pod with the radiation, and he dies, and, you know, Kirk, you will always be my friend, or Spock, you will always be my friend, depending on who's who. And that's it, you know, so long. Sorry, buddy. You know? That's right, and we didn't we didn't have triple blood to like save you know Kirk. We did not have triple blood. <laughs> if you can figure out how to rescue the person um, without endangering others, then fine. But if you if you can't, then you can't even you can't be you know thinking about that. I mean, it's it's such an extreme condition, such an extreme circumstance. I just don't see you know why you would. Um, you know, do that. I mean, it is one thing if you think you can, but once conditions get, you know, really difficult. I mean, I actually personally would have liked to have seen the storm actually hit. Like, I think I was really interested in, oh, what would a Martian sandstorm be like? You know, it'd be a lot more complicated than my poor little sound foley lab yeah, could handle. Yeah, yeah. Well, I was, I was like a little disappointed that the storm was over, or that. The- <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I was actually um, in in writing about the sandstorm. Initially, um, I wanted to have it as like this raging, you know, like like you know tsunami, but. I was reading The Martian at the time, and, of course, that was, you know, one of the incipient events that sort of set everything in motion. But then, of course, after I read The Martian, and I start reading, of course, all the scientific criticisms. Yeah, the the planetary sciences and the, yeah. Yeah, like it really would not have, the, the Martian atmosphere actually probably wouldn't support a tsunami for a dust a dust oh. storm. Although you could get a dust storm that would, you know, certainly obscure visibility pretty significantly. Yeah. But but yeah, so I opted not to All have right. a tsunami. Yeah. Okay. And the funny <laughs> thing is, in the later mm-hmm. dust storm that's in the book of the uh, the Martian, they actually handle it right. The the sun just gets clouded more and more, and he doesn't even realize it until <laughs> his, his batteries aren't charging right. Right. Exactly, right. exactly. That was that was like the best, you know, at the towards the end. Now, a friend of not a friend, but a, somebody I know online, he wrote a book called Safe is Not an Option: How an Obsessive uh Focus on Safety is Killing the Space Program. Because yeah. everybody's always saying, well, first off, we're going to keep everybody safe. Well, the safest way to keep the best way to keep everybody safe is to not yeah. send them Right. right. <laughs> and the poor rover is thinking, man. <laughs> oh, man. Snap. <laughs>
you know, the public was more forgiving years ago. There were a lot of uh, explosions, rockets that blew up. You know, right before the guys flew, um, you know, several craft blew up, and you know, they they used to joke that they were being put on top of a bomb. But you know, the public was more tolerant of that. Now you have a, a problem, and you know, they cancel your program. Yep, that's it. It's over. Well, and also back then it was seen as a front in the Cold War. That was a that was a forcing function as well. That right. uh, that it was actually it was something seen as important by a large percentage of people. And that's you know it's debatable, but it, it's less so now. Well, I- well, we certainly brought up the the option of a reality show component, which I think would find a lot more people willing to take risks for their 15 minutes, Bill notwithstanding. Um, you know, who would be on, who would be on your ideal crew? Uh, you know, you're, you're going on a mission to Mars. What specialists from any field at all are you taking with you? I'm taking helmets. Yeah. <laughs> you need a German. <laughs> a generalist, not a specialist. I would bring no specialist. You want a generalist because you have to be well-versed in many things because you're going to have to be in many places with many complicated stuff. And you can always call home for the specialist uh, discussion within reason. So uh, uh, for the medical physician, you want a generalist. You want family practice. Oh, wow. Oh, that, I never thought of it that way. That's really brilliant, actually. Yeah, I talked to a dentist one time, asked, talking to him about this sort of thing, and he said, yeah, a regular doctor could, could do most dental work, you know, just need a little bit of practice on filling a couple fillings and, you know, getting some of the, some of the more likely things that you'd see. But, yeah, you don't, you don't need a dentist. Well, I think, you know, <laughs> if you look at the – I think that's probably true, like, with the Antarctic program. Isn't it that a lot of the physicians that go down there are, are like, generalists? Yes. Um, yeah. Because one day you're going to suture, and the next day you may have to pull a tooth, and the next day you got to look in their eyes, and then, you know, oh, my God, the belly hurts. Well, that's a whole other problem. So yeah. you've got you've to be able to do it all. I'm sorry. I can only address heart issues. <laughs> you're not valuable, Sonny. <laughs> Actually, uh, a way that I was toying with to get crews, the, the best crews together, was to take a, a group of talented generalists and put them together and say here are the list here are the skills we need form yourselves into teams so that you you had people naturally gravitate to each other who could work together and that would form your team you say we need a group of five people uh you you guess you know just get these as many of these skills as you can then train them on the few that they're missing and there's your there's your crew mm-hmm. that's beautiful yeah i like yeah, that good idea does that does that hold for um, engineers? Like specific, you know, like would you would you just have like a general, like a mechanical engineer? You want the miracle worker who can be a mechanical engineer today and an electrical engineer tomorrow and a IT yeah. guy in five minutes, and yeah. you want the guy that can repair stuff, and he may or may not have a bunch of degrees, but if like the German team, one of the most valuable guys on the German team was a young kid who could fix and make anything. And he didn't have a college degree, but they would not leave him behind. They brought yeah. him out. He was he was the most valuable guy. So let's let's reframe the question then a little bit. Each of you can bring on your team. We'll assume it has a nice mix of generalists. You can bring one movie character as part of your team. So, for example, I'd take a uh, Bruce Willis from Armageddon. <laughs> But All right. <laughs> you've, got, you've got one person from any any film or television show that can be part of your team from any field who you think would contribute. Oh, so not just not just medicine, but one character from any film or television show who is going to be on that Mars mission with you, and you think they they have that good general range of abilities. Who are you all taking? Okay, this is Tom, and it's completely cliche, but I'm going to say MacGyver with a little more, <laughs> with a little more control, yeah, a little more, just a little more focus on some of the long-term thought. I was going to say Mark Watney. Um, 
you know, because I thought it was very clever how they wove the story. They had botany, but he also had an engineering background. You know, half the stuff that he had to do was jerry-rig stuff and or readapting. I was absolutely thinking of Hawkeye, and then I was going through all my MASH characters and thinking, okay, well, if not Hawkeye, who... Radar. Well, then clearly it'd be Hot Lips. Radar. You need a yeah. person in the crew that can keep everybody even keel. So usually when you have a group, there's one or two people that... When you put them in the mix, they just kind of keep everybody blended, everybody working together. They smooth out the rough edges when people get edgy. So you need that person as well, because you've been talking about engineers and fix-it kind of people, but you also need the mental people fix-it kind of person. So you need multiple personalities present in a good combination, which if we throw back to Star Trek, there was always three of them. We had the country doctor, who was the emotional guy, we had the the scientist, which was Spock, and then we had, you know, the warrior type when the three of them were always together, and they couldn't do it separately. They had to always do it together. Right. It, it's And um, I remember in, you know, like a season of House, which is one of my all-time favorites to always reference, but they had House on there, and you were talking about, you got to have Cuddy. She said, I want someone who can be not just thinking about black and white. You know, I want someone on board who can genuinely understand the in-betweens, the shades of gray. I was waiting for that. <laughs> <laughs> fine, there, you happy, fine. <laughs> okay, good. And what about you, Gary? Who would you bring along? I think what you need is, is someone uh, in a leadership role that can keep people calm in a crisis uh, and really approach decision-making in sort of a rational man, uh, manner. Uh, so you'd want someone with uh, some background, uh, someone a previous, someone an astronaut with some previous history, like, say, on the space station where they've had some crises perhaps before, like a fire or something. And I, the character that I sort of immediately kept... Um, thought of and kept coming back to was the, uh, Tom Hanks' character from Apollo 13, someone yeah. who provided that leadership at a time of crisis. Um, I, yeah, I agree. I was thinking, yeah, yeah absolutely, Jim Lovell. Jim yeah. Lovell, yep. Lovell, mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It kind of brings up why at the end of the film, when, they, when Pat looks over and goes, oh, my God. What <laughs> And you go, why didn't you get all excited? Because astronauts would not scream. Right, right, right. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Oh, my God. Oh, my. how they respond. They don't respond screaming and running from the the thing. And I remember somebody asked me, you know, why why didn't you yell or something? And I said, because they really wouldn't. Yeah, yeah. Uh, The years and years of training that they undergo, just even at the most the edge of crisis where you're really starting to lose it because of fear and panic that you still take a breath and say something other than, Oh my God. Just, you know, probably even that was um, a little over the top for that kind. I know, but I was yelling at all of you at every step along the way to emote. Yeah. Emote. Be be enthusiastic. And you're like, no, astronauts wouldn't do that. We'd just be like, Oh, he ran off. Bummer. Bummer. Apollo 13, you know, the guys are thinking that they're probably dead, and the guy just calls up on the phone and says, Houston, we have a problem. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, and... We're in a spot of bother over here. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's, we exactly see What, what? That's what made that scene and that line so memorable, and it still resonates, because it was the understatement of the year, and... Yeah. But it was what we do hope that we will be and what we will do in a crisis. Yeah. Right. That right. You Remember, the rescue of the Miracle on the Hudson was mostly uncoordinated. They were people with boats and, and there were nearby ferries and stuff like yeah. that. They were just pulling people off that plane. They, 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 happened, uh, yep, they happened to be on duty in the Hudson and they just, they just went for the plane. Yep. Poor Tom Hanks should just stop working. <laughs> like he's always playing these people who are get forced to make terrible decisions. I'm very excited for that movie. I can't wait to see what they do with oh, it. Oh, I know. Yeah. 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 Agreed. That's all sort of the medical aspects. What about, uh, is there anything technical that 
you know, we we as the audience should know because certainly this was my my first experience with anything as cosmologically related as a space mission. Well, there's a lot of things we left out. You know, the the soil outgasses CO2. It's you know, there's a there's a lot of things that we didn't add in. There wasn't time for. And in the honesty, there's a lot of things we don't know. You know, we, we don't know a lot about Martian soil and what it can do or not do. Or the, you know, the radiation and how it comes in and out and, you know, what the, what the weather really is. You, you know, you gotta go live there. I mean, we can talk about deserts, but until you live in one, you don't really appreciate. So, um, you know, you have to kind of see and there's, there's an awful lot of stuff we don't know. Right. We just don't. Time clock, circadian rhythm, Mars has a similar day, but not an exact day. Um, how does that affect, you know, the body? We're synced with Earth. You know, how long would it take us to sync to a different planet? You know, right. Mars is pretty close, but, you know, you go out a little farther, and, you know, some of the days, the seasons you know, are really different. And how would that biologically change us? I mean, we, we just don't know. And, you know, one of the other things I actually remembered I wanted to ask about is all of these things that we had take place in the radio drama, even though the story itself uh, was released over several months, really took place within the first couple days of landing on the surface. Is this the kind of problems, you know, if, if you can... Does everything crash down immediately in terms of catastrophes, or was this unrealistic? Catastrophes tend not to come singly, um, mm -hmm. just so you know that. And there's a, a classic one that um, unfortunately comes from war, but it basically says your plans are over on day one. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because from that point forward, you have no idea, and you have to adapt on a minute-by-minute -minute basis going forward. You might have the best plan in the world, but, you know, the weather could not work, work for you. You know, something doesn't arrive, something doesn't get there. I mean, it, it, it all changes the minute you start on day one. Sure, yeah, and sure. As, and as soon as, the, uh, as soon as the adrenaline starts pumping, most people have trouble making good decisions. Realistically, the emergencies, if they were to happen because of uh, carelessness or mistakes, they're likely to happen later in the mission because people are getting complacent. There may be some fatigue built in. And so I think it, you would be part of the uh, leadership of the mission would be focused on keeping everyone on their game and, uh, and treating everything sort of like it's new and, and, and just keeping in the game and making sure they're being safe. Yeah, in this case, the uh, the trigger to the whole thing was a bad harness that they were using on the hydrazine tank. So, you know, we couldn't be blamed on any one person in particular or or any of the, a lot of the other factors. It was purely a, a mechanical failure that drove the rest of it. It's scary to think about how much is in your control and how much is out of your control. And from that point on, how you can react or what you can do. All this took place over the course of maybe a day or two. Is there a window where if you can make it past that first period, disasters are less likely to occur? I'm sure there's there's some statistical actuary out there figuring it out. Well, I know. I don't know. I wouldn't be surprised if NASA is probably doing this type of modeling now, but, but I know that there was a lot of work done during the shuttle and space station years, at least from a medical standpoint, in, in modeling what are the most likely medical events to occur, when they would occur, their severity. So they certainly have done that over the years and, and have a pretty, I think, a pretty fair estimation of the types of events with, that would occur. I think they're only starting to consider those types of things for long-duration flight or planetary settlement, but uh, I, I'm sure that they're you know, planning that. So what, what are the most common medical issues that, that they've expected to ha occur? I think the two that's, well, I would say the three issues right now, just based on, on what's being pretty actively researched, and you see a number of articles in the lay press about this, long-duration transit would be, number one, radiation exposure. And, you know, immediately what comes to mind is, ooh, it's, it's, it's galactic cosmic rays, but actually the ones that can really do some significant harm are particle exposure. So from... 
you know, a massive solar flare and the particles emanating from that that, that I think are, are more of a, of a danger. Although cosmic rays, you know, may have a cumulative rate, a cumulative danger as well over time. Um, yes, so they cause you to make terrible superhero movies. Hulk <laughs> <laughs> out. Um, but, but radiation exposure and, and sufficient shielding on the spacecraft is, is a, that is a, a huge issue that, that I don't think we have sufficient answers for yet. So that's one salient issue. The so other you're talking, you're talking about solar storms right there, right? So just so, the ejected, right. ejected plasma just coming out and, and all that, all this atmosphere that's protecting us here on Earth doesn't, isn't out there. And that's the magnetic right. field. And the magnetic field. So that's going to mess with instruments. Metroid instruments and also the human instruments on your work bodily. Oh work. sure, yeah. Which way is up anyway? Yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, that's one major major issue. The the other issue is going to be bone loss. Uh, you know, over time, the longer you're in space, you have progressive loss of of bone mineralization as well as as muscle strength. And you know, we know that exercise to a degree kind of mitigates some of that, but it's still we can't completely arrested well with one caveat i know there's been some experimentation with a particular machine they had on space station called a red i believe they were able to actually almost completely arrest bone loss but at the, at mm. the expense of a higher fre- a higher frequency of the eye issues and that's the third issue that i think is very concerning that uh you know we've discovered in the last decade or so, I think. It's a fairly recently described phenomenon that that astronauts, in some cases, are losing their visual acuity. And the longer you're in space, that seems to be more of an issue. They don't know exactly what, why that occurs, but some of the conditions seems to mimic cert- some conditions that you see on Earth with increased intracranial hypertension and so forth. But no one knows the exact reason, but it is occurring with the astronauts. And the, obviously, the big issue is I mean, could they? Could this become such a problem that they could lose their eyesight? Wow! So, yeah. So, so you're you're saying pressure builds up in the brain and behind the eye because the optic nerve is contiguous with the brain, and so that pressure um, kind of squeezes the retina from the back. What they what they've observed is that literally the eyeball is getting squashed from behind. Right. And there, uh, uh, and that there can even be folds that can occur in the in the optic nerve. And oh, 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 it gets kinked. It gets kinked. And the, oh. one of the, the predominant theories that this may have to do with the, the cephalic flow of fluid that occurs when you get into a weightless environment, that fluids are flowing towards the head because they're more <laughs> evenly distributed in the body. But I don't think that's 100%. That's kind of NASA's big working theory. But I don't think that's absolutely, you know, nailed in stone that that's exactly what's going on. A researcher at NASA is actually going to be doing some observational work with Mayo Clinic to look at patients with polycystic ovarian syndrome. Some of the clinical manifestations of PCOS in women can include increased intracranial pressure, eye changes, and some of these changes apparently can mimic what they're seeing in the astronauts. Oh. And PCOS is really a, a condition of hormonal imbalance, including testosterone. Mm-hmm. Yes, so, hyperandrogenism. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, hyperandrogenism. And whether high-stress environment of being in, in weightlessness is inducing a hyperandrogenic state. Oh. Um, <laughs> and maybe, maybe that's causing, causing It's kind of a, I mean, it's a part of the pun out there theory. But no, 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 no. It's interesting. Uh, it's a, I, I was trying to think of a pun like women have more gravitas. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, when gravity leaves a woman, she becomes a man. I mean, the one criticism of some of this research, potential research, is that PCOS is in women. The majority of these cases that have been observed in space have been in men. But you kind of probably have a selection bias because the majority of the astronauts that have flown um, have been men. Yeah. So, um, but this this work is apparently going to be starting, and and the other great point about this guy coming up with this idea is that is a completely out of the box idea. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> that's what we need. Completely out of the box. And that's, <laughs> that's how most great discoveries are made. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Just a, a little crazy is excellent. 
I, I just want to, so this is out in zero G and traveling between the Earth to Mars. Uh, so our, our intrepid crew was out on Mars. So some of this was mitigated, right? There was gravity, not as good as Earth, but there was gravity. So probably a little less bone loss. You have a, a thin atmosphere, so a little bit of uh, less of a, of a worry from solar storms and cosmic radiation. Um, is there one in particular, like on the surface of Mars, from health issues, either long-term or short-term, that kind of carries over from space down onto the planet that you can think of? I'd uh, say the dust is a big question mark. Yeah. Oh, oh, sure. Inhaling, yeah. Yep. Dust can be a, it's an issue. Um, I think the other potential issue is the the soil content has a high amount of uh, peroxides and perchlorates, if I recall, and they're uh. very corrosive. I mean, so I think there's been some of that's also whacked into discussions about whether you could actually grow plants on the on the Martian surface, but um, I think that's. Toxic exposure from the soil, I think, is certainly an issue. Wow. Okay. And for more information on all the medical things that can happen in space, check out our previous season's episodes with the same guests. Yeah, <laughs> yeah all the um, wonderful people that you hear right now. So one of the last things I definitely want to touch on is mission control. I know we spent a lot of time talking about our crew up on Mars and the medical things they had there, but what's what does it look like from the ground side, the side that most of us may actually have a decent chance of getting into if we work hard and pay attention <laughs> in school? Learn your math, kids. All For me, the, the best description of what's going to happen there is that what we call mission control now will move more into what's been called mission support. Because now, on board the International Space Station, if an astronaut is doing some task, there are times where they have to ask for permission to do every step. And that's just not going to happen on Mars. With a between 5 and 20-minute one-way communication, it's just not going to be that way. So the so the mission control is going to have to mesh into, all right, we know they're coming up on this. What kind of what kind of information might they be needing, and can we get on the way to them? They're not always going to be right, but when they are, it'll be a big help. It's like a semicircle with um, the screens that everybody's used to seeing, but what, what you forget is behind every seat is a whole cadre of other people and experts. So someone might be sitting at, say, the flight medicine desk, but if they come across a problem that they don't know or they need help on, there's a whole group of people behind them that they call to get even more information, and a lot of people don't realize that it's, it's, it's more like a central place, and then there's all these other people that are helping. And right. um, so, you know, there's a lot of positions that people never hear about that are very valuable because they're kind of behind the scenes. I'll support that as well. The, the difference between, uh, say, what happened in the movie Apollo 13, well, the real life Apollo 13, and what you might see in the sim is in uh, with the Apollo 13 case, it was really, in many cases, it was one decision-making cycle because they're having they're in constant communication. Uh, and then when they need to break and think about problems, they break, they think about problems, and they come back, and it's sort of one cycle. When you have it, uh, communications that are separated by 20-minute or 40-minute relay time, you, you will have two decision-making cycles. The astronauts will, will will be working their own cycle independent of what mission control is doing, and there will be potential there for conflict when you'll have, say, the mission control um, back on Earth uh, maybe start second-guessing or suggesting things or ordering things that the crew on Mars have already considered and rejected because of uh, their own decision-making cycle. So I think there is some potential for conflict there. I think that is a pretty good debrief of both our show and another fascinating glimpse into the world of space medicine. So thank all of you for your help and participation both in the story and just for being such interesting folks. Yeah, you guys totally rock. Thank you so, so much for everything you taught us. And that concludes this special episode. Uh, thanks to all our various representatives, Gary from the Canadian Space Society, Lynn, 
Linda, Thomas from the National Space Society, Eleanor, and of course Linda from the Space Medicine Associates. And all of you are fantastic listeners. Hope your time listening to this episode was out of this world. <laughs> no, that was the wrong sound. That was the wrong sound. Oh, damn it. It was the wrong sound. Space Ghost. <laughs> coast to coast. <laughs> all right, folks. So that brings it to an end. As always, our theme music is composed by Rachel Leisure. We love to hear your comments, concerns, questions, and feedback. You can find us on Facebook, on Twitter, on Squarespace, and please leave us ratings and reviews on iTunes or wherever you download your podcasts. Thank you so much for joining us, and as always, until next time, happy travels. Happy travels. Bye, guys. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.